This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Uh, joining me on the phone, it is the one, uh, the only, the indefatigable Ted Nugent. And of course, he's got a new album out that came out in November of 2018 called The Music Made Me Do It. And... And on July 19th, the Music Made Me Do It tour starts. It runs all the way to August 31st. So we talk about all that during this interview. But I want to say this about interviewing Ted Nugent. I, I put it up on my socials, going to interview Ted, on my Facebook, on my and right away, the hate began. How dare you? He's a this, he's a that, you're a this, you're a that. And I will maintain that I am a rock journalist and I interview rock stars. I don't do politics. And I know that's, that might disappoint some, but let's, let's be very, very real about this. If I had to vet every musician I talk to to find out about their arrest records, their drug use, the, do they support this candidate or that candidate? Do they support these rights? Or the, there would be no show. There would be no interviews because somewhere along the line, whoever I'd be talking to will offend some group or some person or something. It, it, this is rock talk. I talk rock. So I got Ted on the phone. This is the third interview with Ted. And guess what? Like I did in the previous two interviews, we talk rock. We talk about uh, producers. We talk about the damn Yankees. We talk about uh, the 40th anniversary of one of his albums. We talk about uh, the guitar he uses or the one that he's known for, etc., etc., etc. And I think that that is what my job is. So talk rock. And so I'm not going to sit here and start saying, well, I can't talk to this guy or this girl or this person. Anyhow, if you enjoy... Ted, have a listen. It's a great chat. And if you don't enjoy Ted, well, we'll catch you on another episode. So there you go. Anyway, this is a part of Mitch Marathon Month. We have been, or I have been, uh, trying to put out an interview a day to catch up on all the interviews that have been sitting in the closet. Now, Ted, I spoke with on uh, June 27th, 2019, and I'm posting this on June 27th, 2019. So yes, I'm not actually uh, clearing out the closet because I, <laughs> I just seem to be adding to it. And so uh, I have made the executive decision as the executive producer of this show. Well, the only producer of, the, well, in fact, the only person involved with the show that uh, I will, instead of uh, throwing stuff in the closet and then having interviews from April air before I'm going to put all the new stuff first, and as I start whittling down the new stuff, I'm, I'll put some of the, the ones that have been, uh, unfortunately, uh, sitting in a closet for too long, metaphorically. Anyway, uh, do, if you have a, 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 a chance, um, head over to loudtracks.com forward slash Mitch, and uh, check out the uh, merchandise, the Mitch merch, that's a good word for it that I have there, uh, t-shirts and stuff. Uh, have a look uh, if uh, you are uh, willing to uh, partake in the excitement of the uh, rock talk world. Uh, please uh, buy a shirt, show your colors, and do me a favor. 
go to Twitter at Mitch Lafon or my Facebook and post a picture of yourself in the shirt. I, I, I actually quite enjoy that, you know, um, being a, being a sort of a kid that grew up in a, um, rural area with, with raccoons and, and foxes and stuff and to, to, to think that anybody would wear a shirt with my name on it is mind blowing. And, and anyway, it, it's just, just whatever. Indulge me. Go to loudtracks.com, buy a shirt, uh, support the cause and, uh, support rock and roll and support Ted. And I will say this, uh, last time I interviewed Ted, I guess it was in November, just as the album came out, or maybe it was in, um, October. Anyway, Ted gets on the phone, goes right into Tedness, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Give it a, hi, how's it going? Hey, and I'm just going, Hey, great, great, great. And uh, literally about 15 minutes later, I go, okay, great. Let's, uh, let me get started here and let me hit record. And he's like, what? You weren't recording any of that? I go, no, it was just the hellos. So this time, this time, his assistant, Linda, calls and said, well, Ted's going to call in in a second. And I had the tape rolling. I, damn straight. I had it rolling. So normally I'll do a count and like, hey, you know, you won't hear this, but I'll do three, two, one. Hey, we're talking to Ted Nugent, but... Not this time. This time, you're just going to go, ooh, ooh, here's Ted. It's, it's, we're, you're, it, three, two, one. So you are getting the entire call. Now, uh, mind you, when I do the interviews, you always get the entire, entire interview. But generally, sometimes, uh, before we actually do three, two, one, hey, we're talking to so-and-so, it'll be like, hey, uh, you know, hey, Ted, how's it going? Yeah, I love the new album. Well, uh, l- let me get this uh, tape rolling. Let me check my levels and... And so, so that part of the phone calls are usually edited out because they're really not, it's not interesting to hear me go three, two, one, hey, we're talking to Gene Simmons, you know, but this time you're not getting that. You're you're getting the minute he got on the phone, ready, set, go. And actually, when I think about it, I might've missed like a a millisecond of it. So the tape might cut in awkward and that's not a, a bad edit. That's just where the recording started recording. So um, just just get ready for this. You are getting all of Ted unfiltered, uncensored. There are no sound bites here. There is no uh, fancy snipping and snapping to make Ted say things that he didn't say. This is pure, unadulterated podcast radio with a pure, unadulterated rock star. And his name is Ted Nugent. How are you? I'm doing so good, it's stupid, and I'm willing to share it with you. Say thank you, Uncle Ted. <laughs> thank you, Uncle Ted. Always a You're pleasure, by well. the way, to talk to you. And uh, looking forward to our chat today. It's our, it's our third one in the last two years, and it's always... And, 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 and as am I, because I love truth, logic, and common sense, and I love the, the linguistic road less traveled. And Mitch, you are, my, you are my truth, logic, common sense blood brother, so take it away. Good. So uh, let's get started. And see, I learned last time I didn't start the tape rolling right away. <laughs> we missed a lot of great. Boy, stuff. I so. would. I would. All the, oh. all the opening salutations are the most are the most fun of all. Yeah. So I've got I've got it going now. Um, I'm going to start with this just because uh, every time I am about to interview you, I go to my socials and I say, "Hey, going to be talking to Ted Nugent," and I'm a, and right away I get a lot of hate, a lot of. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't promote him. I'm going to unfollow you. Yeah, so so just talk to me about that because, you know, as a rock journalist, 
I report on rock and roll and rock stars. Yeah. You play Talk guitar. With. You sing. You know, uh, if I were to vet... I, I'm quite the dancer, too, Mitch. Don't, don't underestimate my dancing. I'm like a greasy two-shoe <laughs> son of a bitch, I'll tell you. I know, but I, I just want to know what, what you think about this, because if I were to vet every single rock star for, you know, if they support this or if they're anti-this, I would have no show, and I would have no interviews because I'd have to eliminate probably everybody. Um, well, let's let's identify it for what it is, and thank you for bringing that up, because, you know, I live really a, a, a wonderful, positive quality of life. My family, my band, my crew, all my friends, all the different people I work with, with the military charities and the children's charities. I mean, I, it's almost like I have to adjust my halo to fit through the door. Uh, my life is so positive, but because I represent... And I always have since the 1960s when the hippies hated me because I was against drugs. I'm against comfortably numb. I'm against being stoned because you can't be an asset to your family if you're stoned. And people listening right now to us, they just attack me for saying that. But those people that don't know that you're in the liability column when you're stoned, it's because they're stoned. I've had to step over all these wonderful people's bodies and these great virtuosos in all my life since the 1960s because they tried to convince me that getting stoned was a victimless crime. And I would like to bring them on to make the point, but they're all dead. They're all dead because they were the victim of losing touch with their surroundings, and it's not good for you. Now, I'm all 100% for medical, you know, drugs, medical marijuana, whatever you need to feel better when you're sick. Everybody knows that. And I'm also standing loud and proud all through my life for the God-given individual instinctual self-evident truth of self-defense. It's called keeping and bearing arms. And because the comfortably numb nuts out there somehow blame Smith and Wesson for the engineered recidivism in Chicago, they know they can't debate me on the right to keep and bear arms, so they hate me. They attack me. They've actually said, Mitch, that I made nasty comments about my blood brothers in the Native American community. Here's the truth. I never said a negative word in my life about my blood brothers in the Native American community. I have never said a negative word in my life about people of color or ethnicity or gender confusion or religion. or, or I, I don't care about those things. I care about content of character. I also stand for the absolute inescapable responsibility to harvest the natural surplus of deer every year. And they claim I murder innocent animals. It's called food. It's a barbecue. It's the diet that sustains your fellow man. We have a charity called Hunters for the Hungry, where the hunting families of this country, Mitch, think of this. I represent Hunters for the Hungry. We donate $250 million, $250 million hot genuine, delicious, nutritious, natural, organic meals of venison to soup kitchens and homeless shelters every year. And they hate me for that because I'm serving 
they call it a cartoon character, Bambi. So they know they can't debate me, so they have to hate me and lie about me. I am not a racist. I did not dodge the draft. I love the Native Americans. I love blacks and Hispanics and gays and and trans. I love everybody. If you are honest, decent, loving, empathetic, and giving, if you are all those things, you are my blood brother. The people that hate me are absolute scum. Yeah, and and, and I'm I'm baffled as to why uh, they throw that onto you, but also onto me. I'm just like, well, I I do interviews. Come on, folks. So let's talk about the the music made me do it. The the most recent release, and in fact, what you just spoke about is sort of lyrically contained in the song. I just want to go hunting. Um. Talk to me about about this album, because you've got Backstrap Fever, which, of course, is Cat Scratch Fever, you know, 2018 version. What sort of compels you to make new music? Because you could certainly put your name on the marquee and go play Cat Scratch Fever, or you could go play the entire album, and the fans would show up. So what gets you into the studio to pick up the, the, the Gibson Birdland and wail away? How could I possibly help myself? I mean, I'm looking right now. I'm in my I'm in my barn in the swamps of Michigan, and I've got Happy, Coco, and Sadie, my my wonderful dogs. They're all covered in muck because we just got in from a muck run. We like to get muddy and dirty. We are the ultimate down to earth hound dogs. We are so we are so in touch with God's creation. But that being said, in the next room is my studio, and I'm looking at a wall, a virtual effervescent wall of Fender Twin Reverbs and Fender Dual Showman Twin 15 Bottoms, a custom amp, a Magnavox, all plugged in, and there is a blonde. Well, Sadie's a blonde Labrador, Happy's a blonde Catahoulin, and Mrs. Nugent is a blonde goddess. But my blonde Gibson Birdland is in the other room right now, staring me down. I'm 71 this year, Mitch, and I love musical guitar adventure and sonic discovery and grind and groove and musical statements. I love it more in 2019 than I ever have in my life. And that is phenomenal that at my age, I still have this fire-breathing, horny 12-year-old in the garage with his first amp passion for my for my music. But when you're surrounded with Greg Smith on the bass guitar, the funk brother, grinding bass god supreme, and, and Jason Heartless, 23-year-old drum animal from the Motor City, when you've got this kind of unlimited talent and and virtuosity and and musical adventure at your side is a rhythm section it's what every guitar player dreams of so i i i don't go down the road less traveled i go where there has never been a road and nobody had the balls to go there i go where lewis and clark would not have sent sacagawea i not 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 just literally i mean again my dogs in my shoes are covered in muck because i went into a swamp actually it's a fen so we'll have a we'll have an environmental lesson on on your radio show right now, Mitch. In a moment, what a fen is, F E N. But that road untraveled is also available to a musician. 
And we love when you break the paradigms, when you break the shackles of traditional music control. And even though I always rely on the Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Holland Wolf, Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, all these gods of musical freedom authority that created the music that we love, even all these years later, 70-some years later, I can't wait to pick up that Birdland, and I will play notes today, and I will play patterns and grooves that God hasn't authorized yet. I, I love this stuff. The music makes me do it. I, I'm like that seven-year-old kid hearing Little Richard sing Tutti Fruity for the first time and going, what in God's name is that? So I still have that fire because I left the swamp, and then I get back to the electric hand-to-hand combat musical adventure, and they so inspire each other. The silence of the swamp inspires the sonic bombast of my musical dreams, and I'm telling you, that's how I get high. Yeah, and by by the way, I'd like to point out, and I, I mentioned this the last time, because the last time we spoke, Canada had just legalized uh, marijuana, and I had taken a, uh, the cue from Gene Simmons back in the day. I have never done a, a recreational drug in my life, and I also don't drink. Not not as a political thing. It's just you know I also don't play That's basketball. Your choice. Right. I also don't That's play basketball. Choice, right. Uh, I want to ask you this though: the, uh, the the Gibson Birdland, synonymous with with you and your use. What is it about that instrument in particular that that attracted it to you? Is it just the look? Is it the tones? Is it the way the strings bend? I mean. What it is, is it about that instrument that you have just sort of locked and loaded and gone, yeah, that's my well, baby? See, Mitch, Mitch, that's why you deserve me. That's why I'm on the phone with you, because you can go from getting into the most controversial friction topics at the beginning of this, why people hate me, and, and delve into the politics and my swamp running, and then ask me the most important question a musical journalist could possibly ask, and that is why goofy little... 10-year-old Ted Nugent became mesmerized by this Gibson Birdland jazz guitar. And boy, what a great, great subject this is, because I keep in touch with a, a guitar god named Jimmy McCarty. Jimmy McCarty played a Gibson Birdland through a Fender Twin Amp when he was in the band Billy Lee and the Rivieras at the Wald Lake Casino in 1960. Eventually, they changed their name to Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, aha. But when I was in a band called the Lourdes, we were the number one band in Michigan. We won the Battle of the Bands. And I watched this guy, Jimmy McCarty. He was just a teenager at the time. Johnny Benadric on drums, oh my God. Earl Elliott on bass, oh my God. Billy Levice, Mitch Ryder on vocals and tambourine destruction. And, and Joe Kubrick on uh, uh, ES-335 through a Fender Twin Amp. I watched these guys, and the sonic spread coming out of this custom hand-carved North American spruce, very porous, very breathable, and it's semi. It's a. It's not as thick as the old West Montgomery Super 400 jazz guitars, but it had a rich bell ring to it because it was a hollow body. And at these increasing volumes back in the 1960s, that would tend to encourage feedback. And people would fight to stop the feedback, but I discovered when I got my hands on a Birdland that the feedback, when you, when you marry, when you become a, 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 a soulmate with the feedback from a Gibson Birdland hollow body guitar, you can make sounds and noises that predated the sounds and noises of Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I was making these feedback outrages in 64 and 65 with the Amboy Dukes, 
and and it has such a big fat spread and it's a three-quarter scale neck it's really ergonomic and playable um it was made by the greatest wood craftsmen luthiers at the gibson plant gibson guitar plant in kalamazoo michigan back in the 50s and 60s in fact on the very first chuck berry album there was a prototype gibson birdland and again it's hollow body and it's a unique breathable spruce top that's hand carved and arched so that it actually creates a a vocal chamber and you can hear it when i open up stranglehold i mean that lick <clears throat> there's no guitar sound in the world like that and some of the feedback outrage on the live version of hibernation on double live gonzo i mean flutists and saxophonists and organ players wish they could get that kind of noise. Yusef Latif wishes, and, and, and Miles Davis wishes they could get those frequencies, but it's only available when you discover the relationship between your heart, soul, ball, scrotum, fingers, spirit, attitude, mind, and fender loud amps, and that son of a bitch, it makes noises that is so cool, and it's so sexy, it's so inspiring, and I played last night, I'll be playing here in a minute, but I played some notes last night that I'm going, is, would that note work in the key of A? And, and the answer is, well, you're damn right it would, as long as you bend it properly. So I'm still inspired to play these outrageous, adventurous guitar licks, and that's why Jason and Greg and I, have, and, the, and the audiences, last year, 2018, greatest tour of my life, that's amazing, 2019, Mitch, it's going to be the greatest, most outrageous, fun, tightest, grooving rhythm and blues rock and roll tour of my life virtually guaranteed. Yeah, and, and and I do want to mention that the tour does start July 19th. Now, you also, uh, you name-checked Johnny B in there. I, I love Johnny B. The work he did with Alice Cooper also. Monster! Monster! Terrific. He played on my Shut Up and Jam record, yeah. Yep, he did. Um, I'm going to ask you this, because uh, we're, since we're talking about guitars and guitar playing, uh, I've been going down this sort of rabbit hole of Night Ranger stuff and rediscovering all the damn Yankee stuff, and a few years ago... Killer stuff. Yeah, killer, killer stuff. A few years ago, you redid with Night, the Night Ranger guys, Coming of Age, a seven-minute version with this incredible guitar solo that you provide, which I, I think actually is Stranglehole, right? I think so. Yeah, you hear a lot of that, yeah. Um, but I, I was listening to that, and I've been listening to it almost every day for like the last month. Your playing is exceptional and has always been exceptional. But when magazines and with and when websites do these top ten guitarists, you're 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 not often mentioned, and I and I think that's not fair. Um, well, come on, Mitch. You you alluded to this a minute ago, and I, and again, this is an ego. I have an ego because I have self esteem because I put my heart and soul into being the best that I can be. And if you run a race and your chest breaks the ribbon and you won the race, I think you could look in the camera and go, "Man, I'm fast." Man, I ran good. I think that should be celebrated. Excellence should always be celebrated. But remember, those people who, in the musical industry who make those decisions about who's best and who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they, they hate me because I'm against dope. And I am against dope. I don't think it's good. I don't want my sons and daughters. I don't want my grandkids. I don't want my pilots. I don't want my band, I don't want my crew stoned, I don't want them comfortably numb, I don't want to have to wake them up three times to get to the gig, I don't want to have to remind them how the song goes. I've had this all my life, and these people in charge of deciding this, 
they don't like me because I'm on the board of directors with the highest votes for 25 years on the National Rifle Association. They somehow blame inanimate tools on crime. And they think because I support self-defense in the National Rifle Association, which, by the way, the NRA is the greatest grassroots family civil rights organization in the world. We believe that all humans have the right to defend themselves. And if you can't keep and bear arms, you are forced by tyrants, kings, and despots, and emperors to be unarmed and helpless. That is anti-human. So when I articulate it like that, they know they can't debate me, so they just belittle my career. But here's the fact. You go to my Facebook. I know that Jimi Hendrix was a god, and Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley, and Joe Perry, and Joe Baumasa, and, 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 and Ricky Medlock, and Billy Gibbons, and Eddie Van Halen, and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Of course they're the best. Steve Vai, uh, Joe Satriani. Hell, Vic in, in Sammy Hager's band is an unbelievable guitar player. Derek St. Holmes is an unbelievable guitar player. You know, Brad Whitford, I could go on and on and on. You Unlimited. But to think that I don't qualify in the top 100 of guitar players in America is just a stupid lie. Case closed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Well, in fact, let me let me just quickly ask you about the damn Yankees. And, I, and I've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask you this. Love again. the damn Yankees. Love those little monkeys. Man, what, what great albums. And now, uh, there is that, that mythical third album that Tommy Shaw has told me he keeps locked away in a vault in his basement. Um, just talk to me a little bit about getting in that band and, and what was sort of the vision? Was it, we'll just make sort of this super group and we'll make one album and then we'll go our merry way? Or was there a plan to become a long-standing band and then this third album happened and Jack took off and Damon Johnson came around? And what, just talk to me a little bit about the damn Yankees because I was listening to, um, Tell Me How You Want It and Runaway and, um... Killer Song. I'm just going to look over here. Uh, 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 not Bone Stripper. Um, How about Don't Tread, man? What a don't great tread. song. Yeah, and Silence is Broken. I mean, it's phenomenal stuff, and I would certainly love some company to um, rematch. I mean, probably not Universal because the tapes would have been burnt, but uh, – <laughs> right. Yeah, but, but, that, huh? Yeah, I know. You didn't lose anything in that, did you? No, uh-uh. So, so well, just, I'll tell you about the damn Yankees, yeah. and, and I'm glad you're asking these questions. But number one, there was never a moment of friction throughout the damn Yankees' time. There was never a discussion or any illusion whatsoever to what the strategy might be. We got together like a bunch of horny kids in a garage with our first loud amps, and we just let it rip. Michael Cardelloni God of Thunder, Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw, literally walking, talking, maneuvering musical gods. These guys, they burp music. <laughs> These guys, when they chew their food, it has a, it has a, it has a timber to it. <laughs> I mean, to, to, of course, if you go back all the way to my Royal High Boys in 1957, my Lourdes in 1959, the Amboy Dukes, every Ted Nugent band, I have been surrounded by the greatest, most dedicated, gifted musicians that a, a guitar player could ever dream of. The damn Yankees came together because, uh, 
it was time for Tommy and I to jam, uh, and, and we just decided to get together, and we did, and within about five seconds, we played songs that were inspired by our heroes, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. Not specific Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley songs, but that, that fervor, that cadence, that grind, that honky-tonk, boogie-woogie grunt. And, and I knew right away that I always wanted to jam with everybody. And I've jammed with I've jammed with Brian May and Billy Gibbons and the whole ZZ Top and Hart and Journey. I've jammed with uh, Foreigner. I've jammed with uh, the greatest with Eddie Van Halen and with Sammy Hagar. I've jammed with everybody, and what a joy that is! It's indescribable. So to jam with Tommy Shaw, bring Jack Blades in, then Michael Cardelloni. We had no vision other than let's make some killer music. It was all as spontaneous as a 12-year-old erection. It just happened. We, we didn't care why it happened. We just knew what to do with it. <laughs> you know. And, and it was so pure. And even the third album, the reason it never saw light of day is because the band was cocked, locked, and ready to rock the Glock Doc. We all had the same energy and passion for this grinding American soulful rhythm and blues rock and roll grunt. But the producer that they brought in Somehow, I don't know how he got through the door, I can't remember his name, but when you have damn Yankees music, or you have ACDC music, or you have ZZ Top music, or Aerosmith music, you want them to remain that music. You you want to be creative and, and not have any inhibitions in expanding that musical identity, but you want ZZ Top to sound like ZZ Top. I know I do. And this guy came in to produce the damn Yankees, not necessarily embracing the musical purity of our uninhibited musical statement. And so he started recommending these changes and being the gentleman that we are, we somewhat acquiesced and said, well, okay, we'll try that change. Well, by the time we tried some of the musical changes he, represent, he recommended, it was taken away from the purity of this spontaneous, instinctive, raw, guttural, damn Yankees music. And I could see that what Tommy and Jack created when we got together and wrote songs, what they brought was so musical. It was like the Beatles meets the Rolling Stones meets Motown. And you don't mess with that. You don't, you don't, well, we should have less Rolling Stones in this composition. No, 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 shut the f We'll be the judge of that. This music is coming off our fingertips and out of our mouths, but it's coming from our balls and our guts and our spirit. Don't mess with our balls and our guts and our spirit. And this producer did mess with our balls and our guts and our spirit, and it really kind of took some of the wind out of our sails. Instead of me coming in in the true Nugent fashion, boy, would it have worked beautifully then, I should have come in on a rope with a loincloth with an erection and a crowbar and started beating the son of a bitch over the head and say, get the fuck out of here! Leave, let us be damn Yankees. And that's why you've never heard that third album, because he was, he was messing with the beast. And I'm going to tell you right now, I know Jack, I know Tommy, I know Michael. If we got in a room and just plugged in and just banged out what came first and foremost to our fingertips and our heart, it would be killer 
music. And I pray that that moment will happen at some time in the future. Oh, I do too. So, okay, well, let me, let me ask you this then, because the producer on the first two was Ron Nevison, and of course he did UFO and, and Heart and, and, and all these bands. He was a rocker. He was a real rocker, yeah. Yeah, so so how important was he to the sound? Because you, you did in that Lance Hanser talk about how you and Tommy and stuff, when you get in there, there's a sound. But I mean, obviously Ron, who's his credibility, I mean, his, his pedigree is just... Undeniable. Ron, Ron was great because here, here's what makes a great producer. And, and I, this is not just my opinion. I think history proves that my observations are observations of evidence, facts, and data. And here's the data. A great producer is musical. You can reference anything from Wilson Pickett to a George Harrison solo record and he knows what you're talking about. He knows the guitar tone when you make a reference. He knows the sound of killer drums on Led Zeppelin. He knows the sound of a, a killer melody on a Motown hit. He knows when Tommy Shaw opens his, his authoritative musical mouth that, that is, that's the beast. You don't mess with the beast. You might make some recommendations because a musician is so obsessed with our musical statement that sometimes we can become verbose. Have you noticed that about me? I'm a bit verbose because I really believe. I love what I, I, love what I live. I love what I believe in. I love the music that comes out of, out of my spirit. And when I collaborate with a Michael and a Tommy and a Jack, it's a team effort. And, and Ron was the perfect producer because he was a part of that team that revered what Tommy Shaw brought. He revered what Jack Blades brought. He revered the drumming power of Michael Cardelloni. And he revered, at least respected, the sonic bombast and the grind of a Ted Nugent pattern and a Ted Nugent groove and a Ted Nugent fiery guitar solo. So it was a united team, not where we kiss each other's ass, but where we kiss the ass of music. The music made me do it. Boy, that'd be a great name of a record. Uh, and a, a tour. Great, tour. great, great. And a tour, again. Yeah. And so what Ron Nevison brought is what I believe all the great producers, certainly Tom Worman. Oh, Tom Worman on my first solo album, the Ted Nugent album, and the Free For All album, and the Cat Scratch Fever, and Double Live Gonzo. Tom Worman was the quintessential producer because he knew music. He loved the, the forceful noisy, guitar-dominated, huge bass, thundering drums of all our musical heroes, and he made sure that that's what we got. Because I am so enamored with the guitar tone I hear in the room, when you put a mic on the speaker, Mitch, it's not going to capture what my, hear, my ears are hearing as I walk around the room, because I'm hearing all the 15-inch speakers, all the 12-inch speakers. I'm listening to the ricochet off the hard walls and off the hard floor, but a mic can't really pick that up. You've got to find the speaker and the room mic that gets what the human head is hearing. And a great producer like Ron Nevison and Tom Worman, and I, again, all the great producers. I mean, I, I worked with some of the greatest producers that ever lived, and that's what they do. They respect the artist statement and musical projection, and then they bust their ass to capture it in its most honest, accurate form. And that's what Ron Nevison did. You know, and, and I know I know we only have half an hour, so I'm quickly going to remind folks that the uh, the tour starts in uh, Pasadena, California, runs till August 31st. 
Uh, which show, in by the Detroit. Way? In Detroit, I'll be playing at Pine Knob in Detroit 62 years later. I started back playing in Detroit 62 years ago. I'm just, I'm just looking at which shows you're going to invite me to. No, I'm just kidding. Um, How about all of them? You're uh, invited to all of them. I will roll out the Ted Nugent Danger Zone carpet and get you a Werner's float with French vanilla ice cream, and I'll let you fondle some hardware. That would be great. I would love that. Um, but I'm oh, you'd ask, love that. I'm going to ask you this just real quick because uh, we're going to run out of time. But you mentioned Tom Worman, and Tom is, is a friend of mine. I've stayed at his place. It's, it's a great, by the way, great bed and breakfast if, if folks ever want to go. Sure. Isn't that in Martha's Vineyard or somewhere like that? It is in the Berkshires. Yeah, there you go. And it's 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 an amazing property and you walk in and the first thing you see are gold and platinum records by Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and the... But I want to ask you this, because you mentioned him, and I, and I love Tom, but when you look at the career and you hear guys like Nikki Six and the people in Cheap Trick, and they say, well, Tom made us too commercial, Tom made us too wimpy, Tom, and you just said that Tom was a producer, and I'm with you, because I think most, some of the most successful albums by those bands were Tom Worman produced. Why do you think some of these artists go back and sort of have this revisionist history of, well, Tom... Because Tom's great, and your number one album was by Tom. So, you know, how about a, a thank sure. you? Well, I, I understand that because, again, um, you know, we talk about ego and self-esteem and uh, uh, subjectivism. Uh, there's nothing more ego, self-esteem, and subjectivism than a musician because we love what we make, even if it sucks. <laughs> We love we love the noises we make in our in our garage, even if they suck. <laughs> now I'm only uh, referencing that because I've witnessed it. I've never actually made any noises that suck. None of my licks suck, but I know that sometimes guys make music that sucks, <laughs> and a guy like Tom Worman will come in and go. Uh, you know, I know how Tom works. He goes, you know, that song's not as good as these other songs. What he wanted to say was that song sucks. We're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so he'll get in there with a Motley Crue and with a Cheap Trick. Now, he didn't do this with me, and I mean this. You can talk to Tom about it. He did recommend things, and he actually changed some arrangements for the better, and I thank him for that. For example, just what the doctor ordered, I didn't break in between the dissension from uh, in the key of uh, B from F sharp to E. We didn't stop on the, on the E chord. Um, we actually kept grinding, but he pushed the mute buttons so it sounded like the band actually stopped. This is just what the doctor ordered! Bam! Back into the band. So he made some suggestions that were probably better referencing my heroes of Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and the Motown and the Funk Brother Gods than even I was able to because I, I get stoned, inebriated, intoxicated, drunk, goofy, bonsai, double live gonzo when I'm playing guitar and sometimes it's another musical lover that I respect like a Tom Worman who comes in and goes you know that's great how that screams in that break but how about if it stops and just the drums keep going and oftentimes I would go yeah let's try that and sometimes I go no way that's stupid but you have to have those discussions so when when uh when a cheat when a uh, certainly cheap trick which has the, just a great musical authority and uh, um, what we're not going to take it anymore. What's that band? No, uh, Motley Crue. Oh, my, Mot the well, Motley oh, no, you, you, no you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. D. Snyder has said. Yeah, D. Snyder. So they came in with a bunch of garage band. They're a great band. They're as raw and garage band as you'll ever get. But I know Tom had to kind of 
uh, and I, I hate to use the term smooth out the rough edges because that's not what Tom does, but maybe reduce, keep the rough edges as rough as possible, which is uh, what, what Motley Crue and Cheap Trick and I and, and Dee Snyder and the guys do. That's what we do best. But Tom would make sure that there, were, that, that there was some um, infectious elements so that they could have a smoking in the boys' room, which, by the way, Michael Lutz from Brownsville Station, who wrote that song, Smoking in the Boys' Room, he's the one who's produced my last few records because he's a musical god. So there is a, there is a dichotomy where the band is all hyped up because they know they're signed to the label for what they've been doing, and then a producer will come in and alter to some degree what they were doing that got them signed in the first place. You understand the confusion when that happens? So the band is going to resist. My, smooth this out. No, he sold records for you because sometimes radio won't play the hardest of raw edges. The Days of Fire by Jimi Hendrix and Purple Haze and Foxy Lady and, you know, Born to be Wild and Journey to the Center of the Mind. And remember, Sunshine of Your Love by Cream was a number one single because it was rough and raw, but it had an infectious melody and an infectious tonality. And that's what a guy like Ron Nevison and great producers like Tom Worman bring to it. You know what would be a great show, Mitch? If me and Tom Worman could do a show together with you and we could bring yes. out the yin and yang because I know he loves the same music that you and I love and people would get an inside view of the record-making procedure like they've never gotten before. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to email Tom and, and ask him if he'll do that. And if he says yes, I will uh, contact Linda and see if we can make it happen. And by the way, Tom told me privately that he had a little studio trick that he would put the worst song of or the song he didn't like as the before last song on side B of every album, which means um, which means he probably didn't like Fist Fighting Son of a Gun, which is terrible because that's a great song. <laughs> But that's great song. Well, that, once again, <laughs> there was a time. Remember, Tom first signed me when no other label, every label had passed me. I was I, I dropped the name Amboy Dukes in '74 because I had so many rotating musicians. Because uh, there's just a lot of irresponsible behavior, and we we toured 300 plus gigs a year. You got to be an animal. <laughs> you got to be obsessed with the music to do that many gigs and not many musicians have that work ethic or or the tenacity to put up with that and it's a shame because i lost some unbelievably gifted dedicated professional musicians just because of the stress factor because i'm a little more gonzo than your average human being have you noticed that and yeah. i think it's why i love i think it's why we love me but anyhow um when i dropped the name amboy dukes tom came and saw us and he loved the outrage. He loved the rawness. He loved the uninhibitedness and the stream of musical consciousness. And so when we got in the studio, there was very little changes. And even though Fist Fighting Son of a Gun might not have been a stranglehold or a hey baby or just what the doctor ordered or a cat scratch fever or a wang dang sweet poontang or a Motor City Madhouse, my God, what amazing songs, huh? But it was still a killer song like Sweet Sally. That's just a killer lick with just a real simple arrangement. But people request Fist Fighting Son of a Gun and Sweet Sally all the time, and I only get to play two hours a night. And uh, if I played all my favorite Ted Nugent songs, I'd be up there for three days. You would be. And by the way, uh, Motor City Madhouse, uh, Kelly Hansen of Foreigner does a cover of it, which is 
freaking amazing. I mean, it's amazing. No anyway, kidding. Good for him, man. Yeah, he does. And uh, I, I know we, we've we've passed half an hour, and uh, but you didn't. That's name, all right. We're talking. We're talking about the things that we love, Mitch. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. Well, well, you mentioned Journey to the Center of the Mind, and that album is. Well, I don't want to say sig- well, I mean, Yeah, significant to me just because it was released in the year that I was born, but it was significant to you in the sense that it was the first album which was all original music. There was no covers on this one. So I just want to get a, a quick sort of insight to that. How important was that looking back, and what's the math on that, 51 years ago? Yeah, for that album... Yeah, God. Oh, God, I'm old. Yeah, my brother John My brother John just sent me a WKNR. That's a, a Detroit radio station that was playing all the hits back then. And Journey to the Center of the Mind by the Amboy Dukes, written by me and Steve Farmer, was number one for eight weeks and it was and you stop and listen to that greg arema on bass oh my god rest his soul dave palmer on drums at 15 years of age andy solomon and rick lober on the keyboards the mighty john brake on lead vocals and steve farmer songwriting monster and rhythm guitar player we had an unleashed musical uninhibitedness and adventure of teenagers that if you listen to that and my guitar solo where did that stupid teenage ted come up with that incredible pattern the, the the groove itself, I wrote the rhythm part, the keyboard part, the bass part. Of course, all my musicians, they elaborated on my basic foundation to make it what it was. It was truly a band effort. But Steve Farmer had such a musical capability with the, the harmonies, the Beatle-like and the Hollies-type harmonies, and the Motown-type harmonies that these guys focused on. But we were just teenagers, and it was just a jam session in the basement, um, that every guitar player goes dun Every guitar player does the you know the bonanza theme, whether it turns into uh, uh, the, the heart playing Barracuda or or the Amboy Dukes playing Journey to the Center of the Mind or 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 Queen playing that. They did a version of that. I think everybody does a a, a variation of the bonanza guitar theme. But being that as it may. We really put our hearts and souls into that, and Steve Farmer went on a musical escapade and created some of those really strange and clever songs like Why is a Carrot More Orange Than an Orange and Down on Phillips Escalator. But unfortunately, Mitch, unfortunately, Greg was getting high and we lost Greg. Steve was getting high and he just couldn't be responsible. We couldn't we just couldn't get him to keep the the rhythm and blues groove in the music and and we ran into those youthful uh, obstacles that i i really believed was getting in the way of really quality killer adventurous american rhythm and blues rock and roll so i started changing musicians and i think the proof is in the pudding all the musicians that i ended up getting rid of you never heard from them again because i'm because comfortably numb does not make for great music. It doesn't make for a great life. It doesn't make for a great anything. I, I, I agree, and it, and it's such a great album. Now, I will remind folks, uh, for tour dates, head over to tednugent.com, or specifically tour.tednugent.com. All the dates are there. And I will finish with this, because we are, we are over, but uh, 40 years of State of Shock, of course, paralyzed the great tune from that album. Killer, yeah. 
How do you look back at State of Shock? Because it was one of those, you know, 1979 when you when you had Kiss doing Dynasty and you had Cheap Trick doing this. It was one of those years where the the the, the 70s rockers were were sort of changing and 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 you know the knack and all that other stuff was going to start slowly creeping in. How do you look back at that album for your own career and, and its own sort of statement? Well, you know, I, I love my music, and again, I I'm awfully subjective. <laughs> I, I I I love music, and when I start playing my music, I, I love what's coming off my fingers, and I love the patterns and the grooves, and I love the lyrics that I'm you know projecting, and it, I. I I'm I'm a compromiser to a degree. I think you can hear compromise when when the guys recommended we 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 include the song together. I think it was on the Free For All album. I'm not a big fan of that song, but uh I think it was Rob and Cliff wrote that song and and I I backed off. I had some other songs that I'd written that I'd wanted to put on there, but I I backed off and let them, you know, uh, get a taste of and 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 experiment with their songwriting and I respected them for that. But on the State of Shock album and the Penetrator album and the If You Can't Lick Em, Lick Em album, I still love the songs and I love the grooves, but I didn't have a Tom Worman or a Tony Reale. Don't underestimate the engineering musical authority of Tony Reale on the first Ted Nugent album and subsequent albums. I didn't have that musical craving team at my side to really overview Ultimately, guitar tones, uh, bass tones, drum tones, and I, I didn't have as many sounding boards that I respected like I did on the first three or four solo albums. And so I think that that lack of teamwork, it, it allowed me to, you know, go a little bit more wild and not scrutinize the final product. And that's what it takes. That's what Ron Nevison did with Damn Yankees. And that's what Tom Worman did with my solo stuff. They scrutinized the final arrangements and tonality and, and mix where the guitar and bass and drums and voice lay in the delivery of the song. And that is so critical. And I think on some of those records, I had a little bit more edgy, trebly guitar tone with the Gibson uh, Howard Roberts Fusion than I had with my uh, Gibson Birdlands on previous albums. And my ears, whether they were diminishing at that point or not, I didn't have a Tony Reality and a Tom Worman to help guide me on those. And so they weren't the best they could possibly have been. That being said, I love those songs. We still play Paralyzed on stage. We play um, uh, I Need You Bad, monster killer song we play a lot of those songs on stage now i mean eventually terminus el dorado and thunder thighs little miss dangerous painkiller are you kidding me we're going to do little miss dangerous and painkiller on tour this year along with uh street rats and a thousand knives we're doing a lot of the deeper cuts this tour so I'm I'm the last person that you even have to bother asking me what I think of all my music because I happen to love all of it. I can imagine, and, and, and I'm just surprised though that that Lou um, Futterman didn't because he was there with Tom on the other one. So so I really get a sense that Tom was the guy with the vision, and and even though Lou was on uh, State of Shock, he just didn't have what Tom had. And and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. Don't don't. No, get me and let me let me let me make it perfectly clear. God bless. Lou Futterman. Lou Futterman 
is a great man. Lou Futterman is a great musical authority. Lou, Lou Futterman is a loyal friend of music and Ted Nugent because Lou stuck with me when everybody else turned me down. Well, feedback guitar isn't cool anymore, and I don't think we need a song about a buffalo. <laughs> and Tom Werman, I mean, Lou Futterman went, yeah, but this guy's got a lot of piss and vinegar. This guy's got a lot of spirit and attitude in his music. The people love his music. I'm going to stick with him. So I love Lou Futterman. I thank Lou Futterman for sticking at my side when I needed the support so that he could fight for me. Uh, but you're right. Some of us have a better ear for music, and Lou had a great ear for music, but Tom Worman and Tony Reale had an unbelievable, killer ear for music, and that's what helped guide those first solo albums. Yeah, they really did. And uh, I'll just say this, uh, the, uh, and to, to end, the, last, the first time I ever saw you was in, I guess it was 1980 at the Montreal Forum, and part of that show ended up on Intensities in 10 Cities, and just just great memories, and I, I've got. Well, what a bunch to... of great what a bunch of great songs on that record. I mean, just the titles alone, intensity and ten cities. How cool is that? Spontaneous combustion, put up or It's just spontaneous combustion. What a great lick! What a great song! What a great band! Yes, <laughs> and 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 I've got to see it again. Uh, but Ted, thank you. Always, always a pleasure. And and for folks out there who. Want to boycott me because I speak to a rock star? Well, come on. Get over it. <laughs> well, bottom line is, Mitch, thank you for that. You're a brave man. You're an honest man. And you don't have hate. And the people that are hating you, I'm afraid, are obsessed with hate. And to those that listen to the haters, I would like you to take a deep breath and truly examine what I stand for. I stand for individual freedom. I am not condemning people who smoke dope. I'm just trying to help them that their lives would be more enriched. They would be more of an asset to their family and their friends and their neighbors. If they were not comfortably numb, you can communicate better when you're not comfortably numb. You can be more productive and more positive. You can be more friendly when you're not comfortably numb. And I believe that a lot of the hate comes from the mind-altering powers of chemical and substance abuse. And I think everyone would be happier and everybody in everyone's lives would be happier if you were clean and sober. I think that clean and sober is better, more intense, more fun, more positive, and more beneficial to quality of life than being stoned, drunk, or comfortably numb. If you hate me for saying that, you might be comfortably numb. And I agree. And and my high is music. I'm seeing five shows in six nights, including uh, Alan Parsons, Peter Frampton, and Brian Adams coming up. And that's awesome. Killer musicians. Killer music. Thank you, sir. And I will get on uh, Tom Worman and see if he wants to uh, to do that. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Always, always a pleasure. Mitch, thank you very much. I hope people will join me at HunterNation.org. And they would join me at my website and on my Facebook, because if you want positive genuine, effervescent attitude, spirit, and positive energy come to my Facebook and the the, the, the goodwill and decency and the, the, the humor. I got some funny, 
funny motherfuckers out there on my Facebook that if you're not having fun on my Facebook, um, you might be uncomfortably dumb. Yeah, and and some of the jams that you post on the Facebook, you just sort of you pick up the guitar and you start wailing. It's like holy crap! Yeah, I got to do that again. That is a lot of fun, especially with this new tone I've got. Oh my god, the tone I have right now—it is insane. I literally opened the door to my shop last week and started playing, and the deer went into the rut. They actually started breeding early. It is. There you go. Thank you, sir. Merci. We'll see. We'll do it again soon. Mitch, live it up. Godspeed. Music forever. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.